The topic today, blessed are the merciful. We'll read the first seven verses to kind of get, get a scoop on what we've been talking about and get a running start. Verse 1, and seeing the multitudes, he, Jesus, went up into a mountain, and when he was set or seated, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And then what we considered last week, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. We are progressing through these eight Beatitudes. The greatest sermon ever preached begins with the greatest blessings ever pronounced. And there is a prog- progression here. It's not just, they're not just random. They're not just a menu of options. These are a checklist of mandatory qualities. Every believer will manifest all of these, not all to the same degree. Each of these virtues implies the next. We need to examine ourselves in the light of these transformational attitudes. Jesus waited till he got everybody's attention before he started. When he was set, he opened his mouth. I hope we're set this morning. I hope we're ready to hear the Word of God. Now, the first four virtues that we've already considered, extolled by Christ in the Beatitudes, might be considered inner qualities, those that affect our minds and hearts. But the second four that we're beginning to get into this week deal directly with our outward behavior, and the two are related for the child of God. Last week, we talked about righteousness. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. And we considered both the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ that is credited to our account, justification, we know about that. But we also considered the imparted righteousness, the practical righteousness, the holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. We must appreciate this perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. We must esteem it the way that God does, as an absolute necessity for salvation. It is God alone who justifies. God alone who can declare you and me righteous. It doesn't matter what somebody else says. They may say, oh, he's a good person. She's a good person. Never seen anybody give the shirt off their back. I don't know how many times I've heard that. But in God's sight, they may be wicked as they can be. In their own sins, not righteous at all. It only matters what God has said about us. Are you righteous in the sight of God? We must appropriate that righteousness. We must be clothed in that spotless robe to be accepted by God. His perfect righteousness must be credited to us just as if it were our own, even though it is not inherent righteousness. It is an alien righteousness. It is a borrowed righteousness. How do we receive it? By faith, totally apart from any works, any good you've ever done, any good you hope to do. How do we receive it? By grace, the pure, unmerited favor of God. 
How do we receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ? By the blood of Christ who died a death he did not deserve to pay a debt he did not owe. We could not pay our sin debt. And then we close with the practical challenge that we need a growing appetite for righteousness, for holiness. I'll be honest with you folks, the average person sitting in a pew of an independent Baptist church just like friendship, has grown so accustomed to unholiness, we're no longer shocked by it. It's on the TV. It's on the Internet. You go out the door, you see it. God hasn't changed. He still hates sin. He demands holiness. Are you growing in it? Have you developed a a relish for divine things? For God Himself, for His Word. Can you say with Job, I have esteemed the words of His mouth more than my necessary food. I'd rather go without breakfast than without the Bible. Do you have a relish for the fellowship of other believers? Are those the kind of people you want to hang out with? I hope so. But now once we as guilty sinners have received the righteousness of God in Christ, we're going to begin to live differently. We'll begin to live more like God. Those who are poor in spirit and mourn over their sin will see their need for mercy that we're talking about today. And having experienced the mercy and forgiveness of God, they will desire to extend that mercy to others. Why? Because something has happened on the inside. They now have a spiritual appetite, having fed on the Word of God. And so it'll show up on the outside. And because they have a spiritual appetite, they're going to advance. They're going to grow. God is concerned about our hearts. Son, give me thine heart. And with this beatitude, Jesus cuts to the chase about the matter of the heart. We are reminded of what Paul said in the great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. He opens that great chapter before he lists the 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 characteristics of love, and he says in a shocking way, it's possible to do many great things. It's possible to even lay down our bodies to be burned. It's possible to speak with the tongues of men and angels and still not have love. Love that manifests itself in deeds of mercy. And if we are devoid of that love, Paul said, if I'm, that, if I'm that way, if I can give my body to be burned, if I could be a martyr for a cause but not have love, he says, I'm no better than a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, I appreciate our orchestra today, and we have cymbals, and we've got things that I guess could be called gongs, I don't know. But I wouldn't want to just hear them by themselves, would you? But in God's sight, we're no better than a sounding gong, a clanging cymbal. If we do things without the heart being right. A man or a woman must be a Christian before they can act as a Christian. That's why these first four Beatitudes precede the four latter ones. And we'll begin with that fifth today. 
Blessed are the merciful. You've got to understand that mercy was certainly not a trait that was esteemed and admired in the Roman world of Jesus' day. The Romans were renowned for many things, but they admired absolute justice and law and courage and asceticism and power, but not mercy. In fact, the Romans called mercy a disease of the soul. Mercy to them was weakness. Many Roman fathers upheld what became known as the right of patria opetastis. You say, what is that, Pastor? Well, that was the right to decide whether their newborn child would live or die. It was hard to do abortions back then, but their infanticide was practiced. I'm not exaggerating. This happened in the Roman world. Someone would hold up the newborn child before the father, and if he wanted it to live, he would do thumbs up. If he wanted it killed, he'd do thumbs down without any fear of arrest. We're headed that direction. Similarly, slaves had no rights. Women had few rights. In many cases in the Roman world, uh, the, the wife could be put to death and she had no recourse, no appeal. Mercy was utterly foreign to the Roman mind. But Jesus Christ, the Jew, comes along and He turns conventional wisdom and mores on their head. Jesus modeled mercy and He mandates it for His disciples. That mandate has not been rescinded. We are to be merciful even as He has been merciful to us. So with the time I have remaining before we baptize some folks here, let's distinguish between true and false mercy or counterfeit mercy and then take a deeper look at the one who exemplified this virtue. And I hope you'll be asking yourself through the course of the message in a very practical way, Am I merciful? Do I really have this heart that Jesus is describing and extolling here? So consider me with me, first of all, the corollaries of mercy. By corollaries, I mean related qualities or virtues inferred from the virtue of mercy. Whenever you see mercy in the Bible mentioned, you hardly ever see it alone. It's almost always linked with something else, another virtue. The most common virtue that it's linked with in the Bible is grace. You see in the pastoral epistles, what Paul wrote to Timothy and to Titus, he opens those epistles, those letters, with a salutation of sincere goodwill. And he says, grace, mercy, and peace. First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus. But it's interesting, when you examine Paul's earlier epistles, which are written to churches like Galatians and uh, church at Corinth and the church at Rome, he, he just says, grace and mercy. Grace and mercy are very closely related. Grace is God's giving to me what I do not deserve. Mercy is God's sparing me what I do deserve. Amen? So both refer to God's acting in ways we do not deserve. It is mercy that pities us. It is grace that pardons us. 
But it blessed my heart to meditate and come up with this realization. Mercy has the added quality of treating kindly those who, apart from that mercy, are miserable and pitiful. Mercy deals with symptoms. Grace deals with the cause. And what's the cause of all human misery? Sin. Jesus gave a parable that really focused on mercy, the parable of the Good Samaritan. When that Good Samaritan came by, and unlike the priest and the Levite that passed by on the other side, when he went to this man who'd been robbed and beaten and left for dead, and he bound up his wounds, he showed mercy. But when he took him to the nearest inn and paid for his lodging till he re- recovered from his injuries and then went back to check on him, he showed grace. Mercy relieved the pain. Grace provided the healing. Mercy doesn't just feel pity toward others. Just like Jesus, whenever he had compassion or pity, he did something about it. Grace is associated with mercy. There's something else associated with mercy in the Bible, and that is love. I will not have you turn to this verse, but just if you put the reference down, Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, 4 and 5 of chapter 2, but God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love, wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sin, hath quickened us, hath made us alive together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. So both God's grace and His mercy flow out of His love. By the way, no one is saved merely because God loves him. Because God loves the whole world, but not the whole world is going to be saved. Jesus beheld the rich young ruler who had many commendable things about him outwardly, but inwardly he had a greedy heart, and Jesus couldn't save him. But the Bible says Jesus loved him in the book of Mark. Interesting. But then the Bible never says God has grace on anybody unless He saves him. God is love in His essence, the Bible says. Now, I don't want to get too technical, but I think we can all understand this. Most of you have been coming to church for a good while. So please put your thinking cap back on. I hope you did check it in at the door. Theologians have for centuries made a distinction between God's natural attributes, or also known as His absolute attributes, and His relative attributes. You say, what do you mean by that? Okay, listen. There are some things that are true about God in and of Himself. In and of Himself. And those are His absolute or natural attributes. For instance, the Bible says, God is holy. Whether or not He ever created you and me or man at all, He's still holy. God is truth. That's absolute. God is love. Twice in the little epistle of 1 John we read that. God is love. But when man came on the, on the scene and, and he sinned, those absolute attributes of God needed to relate to him, and so we have these relative attributes. And so truth becomes faithfulness as it relates to us. Holiness becomes justice 
love becomes grace and mercy. What an awesome thought. When you and I show true mercy, we are displaying one of the attributes of God. We are reflecting God in Christ. Mercy is related to forgiveness in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. Titus 3, verse 5. Finish this statement, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. He freely forgave us. So if God's mercy, listen carefully, if God's mercy flows out of His love, then His forgiveness flows out of His mercy. God forgives because He's merciful. God deals with all men in mercy. He sends a rain on the just and the unjust. He is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, we read in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. If God did not deal with all men in mercy, we would have perished before we even had a chance to repent. Forgiveness is man's greatest need, whether he realizes it or not. If you were to go to the mall today, go downtown, some park, and ask ten men, what is man's greatest need? You probably wouldn't get forgiveness mentioned at all. But that's man's greatest need. I mentioned that when Brother David McLean and I were out in Los Angeles for a conference and in the airport, had quite a layover before we get, flew back. and So I went to a little vendor right beside the gate where we were going to go out of and had a good conversation with a lady. And she asked, I was going to buy some chocolate from her. And she said, well, what do you do for a living? And I said, I go around telling people how they can have their sins forgiven. I said, are you interested? And she was. And for 20 minutes, I was able to give her the gospel. She received a bridge tract and said, I promise you I'll read it. Beloved, that's what we're all called to do. Go around and tell people how they can be reconciled to God. How they can have their sins forgiven. Because whether they realize it or not, that is their greatest need. We find that mercy is also connected with justice in the Bible. Especially in the Old Testament. And I do want you to see this verse, a wonderful verse. It's in Psalm 85 and verse number 10. Would you turn there, please? Keep your finger in Matthew chapter 5. But Psalm 85, verse 10. We read in verse 10, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Those are things we don't ordinarily think of in the same breath. Mercy and truth, righteousness and peace, but God does. God does not cease to be just and righteous when He shows mercy. If I can think of mercy only at the expense of truth and law, then I have a false understanding of it. Because in God's mind, there's no contradiction, there's no incompatibility. Justice is God's giving exactly what is deserved. Mercy, as we've already said, is sparing us what is deserved. How in the world can God be faithful and just and yet forgive us of our sins? Only God could do that. And the answer to the crucial question is, God's mercy is grounded not only in His love, but also in His justice. And that's not something we naturally understand. God doesn't get sentimental all of a sudden when He decides to forgive a sinner. 
He doesn't get senile. On the cross, Jesus satisfied God's justice by dying for your sin and mine. The wages of sin is death. And when a person trusts in the satisfying, propitiating sacrifice of Jesus because Jesus satisfied a holy God, then God showers His mercy upon him. God doesn't wink at justice. He doesn't gloss over sin. He doesn't compromise His righteousness one iota when He forgives the sinner. God is both just and the justifier of him that believes on His Son. Oh, I hope we don't get hardened in hearing that. That's so, so crucial. On the cross, mercy and truth really did meet together in Christ. Justice and righteousness and peace kissed each other. So I can say honestly before you this morning, I am saved, hallelujah, not only by the mercy of God, but as I stand before you today, I am saved by the justice of God. If Jesus died for my sin and I trust in Him, then a just God is not going to make me die for my sin also. That would be double jeopardy. I thought a shout would have gone out. I heard two amens. Thank you. We're saved by the justice of God. Mercy is related to faith in the Bible. Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, that's hard for us to do, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. You say, Brother Bob, where in the world did you get that? How did you read faith into that picture? I didn't see faith mentioned in that verse. That takes a leap of faith to do that. Okay, listen carefully. Follow me. Whenever you or I show mercy, the reason it's mercy is we have the power to hurt someone, but we choose not to. We choose to deny our right. We choose to withhold judgment. And that takes faith because we leave the offender and his offense to God. Do you think God can deal with that person better than you can? Oh, let's have faith in the just and merciful God. Now, I want want you to see some counterfeits of mercy because when the devil can't... um, destroy something, eliminate it, you know what he does? He'll seek to discredit it. You know how he does that? He'll show some extreme of it or some superficial or defective or counterfeit form of it. And we see in God's Word some examples of false mercy, counterfeit mercy. I don't want you to be guilty of this and congratulate yourself on thinking you're merciful. First of all, I see in the Bible illustrations of forced pacification or mercy without justice. You say, what do you mean, Pastor? Well, if an illustration is worth a thousand words, let me share the illustration. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 14, but you'd have to read the whole chapter to really understand it, so I'm not going to have you turn there. But we have the story in 2 Samuel chapter 14 of how King David half-heartedly forgave his rebel son, Absalom. I hope you know who Absalom was. He was a very dashing, handsome guy. 
but he was wicked. He slew his brother Amnon, his half-brother Amnon, for raping his full sister Tamar. And David was hopping mad over that, as any decent dad would have been, but he knew that it was part of God's judgment on his own sin for what he did with Bathsheba and then engineering the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite. So David's between a rock and a hard place. He's mad, but he can't do anything about it. So he he refuses to deal with Absalom, his son, and his heinous sin, and he yields finally to pressure from Joab, the captain of his host, his general, to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem after a period of exile. Now Joab had reason to put pressure on the king, because when Joab didn't initially respond to Absalom, Absalom got his attention by setting his barley fields on fire. Now if somebody sets fields on fire right next to your house, they've got your attention. And so Joab comes to the king on Absalom's behalf. David finally consents to a face-to-face meeting with his spoiled, rebellious son and half-heartedly forgives him, kisses him, but never deals with a shameful, passionate crime that Absalom had committed. And the Bible nowhere says that Absalom ever repented or that his father insisted on that repentance. What was the result? If you've read your Bible, you know. The very next chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 15, describes the sad story of how Absalom committed insurrection against his own father. He stole the hearts of the people so that they wanted him to be king instead of his father David. He committed adultery with his, with his father's concubines in the view of all the people, and he nearly pulled it off. But David, the rightful king in God's providence, had a wise counselor. And Absalom followed the counsel of David's counselor instead of his own counselor. David had to flee from the palace. He had to flee from his own throne in humiliation. Can you imagine that? That's worse than what President Nixon had to do back in the 1970s. A battle ensued in the wood of Ephraim. And Absalom the rebel, the playboy, was killed. And David had lost two of his sons, three of his sons, including the baby. If we fail to deal with sin when we are in the God-given position to do so, we are not showing mercy, folks. We are being permissive and lazy and sentimental, And that will likely do exactly what it did in David's case. It will sow further seeds of rebellion in the heart of the one or ones to whom we have shown excessive leniency. Christian parents are doing this all over. And then they wonder why their kids turn out the way they do. The merciful man does not wink at sin. The merciful man or woman does not smile at transgression. This easygoing live and let live, you don't judge me and I won't judge you attitude that is so prevalent in American Christianity is an affront to God. It's a cop-out on our responsibility. It's a caricature of true mercy. Peace at any price is never a basis for mercy. There must be loving confrontation or sin will be perpetuated and enhanced and confirmed in the offender. Don't fall for that false form of 
mercy. Then there's feigned piety or mercy without sincerity. And this speaks to motive here. If our hearts are not in it, if we are ostentatious and make some kind of outward show of extending mercy just to salve a guilty conscience or just to compensate for a deficiency in our character in some other area or just to impress others, that's also counterfeit mercy and God always judges hypocrites. He exposed the philanthropic hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira in the church in Jerusalem and He will expose us too. Maybe not quite as dramatically. Aren't you glad every time we lie to the Holy Ghost, we're not zapped? And then some people have a sense of fair play or mercy with expectations. I'm talking about a shallow counterfeit mercy that says, I will show mercy to you because I know that you will feel obligated to return the favor. Would Christians do that? (laughs) I'm afraid so. I know they do. And this amounts to wicked presumption, and it violates the command of our Savior in Luke chapter 14. And again, I'm just having, for the sake of time, not ter- have you turned to so many places, but in Luke chapter 14, Jesus teaches the, 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 the wonderful lesson about forgiveness and, and how we are to show mercy to people who cannot do anything in return. He said, he gives a parable, he says, when you make a banquet, don't invite your family and relatives, don't invite your rich neighbors who you expect to return the favor, but when you have a banquet, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, Jesus said, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Is that your motive? To do something to somebody that cannot possibly do something in return because you know you'll have a reward? The one who sees in secret will reward you openly someday? You'd rather have that than the applause of men. I'll never forget my dear mother. She went to be with the Lord back in 2015. <clears throat> but when I was just a kid, some things stand out in vivid, bold relief from when you were a kid. I remember that she would be, she, she, she was a good cook. And uh, she had a lady friend who was affluent, much better off than our poor family. But this lady friend loved my mother's good cooking and one entree dish and I think it was a casserole and it was a good casserole and whenever this lady had company at her house she would ask my mom to fix that dish and mom would do it but she knew exactly how she was going to pay her back the only thing she gave her was a little bowl of cooked corn right out of the can you could get four cans for for a dollar back then Mom never said anything, but I could tell she was biting her lip. Beloved, let's be guileless and Christ-like when we show mercy. Let's not have an agenda. Let's not, not have an expectation. There is one in heaven who still beholds how we give, how we treat others, and He will reward us openly in His time. Can you afford to wait? Finally, I want you to see the criterion for mercy. I mean by that the standard. And you know that could be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. 
wonderful, merciful Savior. Oh, the epitome of mercy. I want you to see, first of all, the uncondemning Christ. And we read about how Jesus forgave the woman taken in the act of adultery there in John chapter 8. The Pharisees brought her, the hypocritical Pharisees brought her to Jesus and threw her down burning in shame and they told Jesus what she'd done. They represented the law, didn't they? Oh, they were sticklers for the law of Moses, but all that the law could do was condemn. The law could not make her righteous. The law could not forgive her. And so Jesus dealt with her. He didn't ignore the sin problem. But he acted consistent with the testimony of himself in John 3, 17. For the Son of Man came not into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And he freely forgave this woman, even as she wept at his feet. He said, has any man condemned you? She said, no, as far as an open condemnation, she hadn't been formally condemned. And then he said those words that ought to ring in our ears and hearts and consciences, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And the mercy of Christ in freely forgiving this wicked woman of her sin, instead of being a license to sin, was the greatest deterrent to sin. Oh, the uncondemning Christ, our example. But I want you to see he was not only the uncondemning Christ, he was the non-retaliatory Christ. As he hung upon the cross, as it's recorded in Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, Jesus made the greatest declaration of mercy ever made. As he said in one of the earlier utterances of the seven recorded utterances in the Gospels, Father, forgive them. And then he gave the reason, for they know not what they do. Could I be transparent with you? I've had a hard time with that. I can understand with Jesus loving people enough to want to forgive them, but how could he say, for they know not what they do? Didn't they know exactly what they were doing? And they still did it. But evidently, Jesus was saying, Father, it's not they, it's Satan. They're just the dupes. They're just the pawns. They're just being governed and manipulated by sin, dominated by sin. And beloved, you and I need to become like that. I don't care how much someone mistreats us. The greater man's hatred is the, the greater God's mercy. Can we say with Stephen, the martyr, as the stones descended upon him, snuffing out his life, and he gasped, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. They don't understand, my Lord and Master. They're blinded by the God of this world. May God help us not to feel anger, but pity. That's not natural. That's grace. It wasn't my nature when we got robbed several years ago on a Sunday. People would call the house of pastors. And that's back when most pastors had still had landlines. And if nobody answered, they figured they weren't at home, and then they'd come hit them. They hit us. Took several thousand dollars worth of stuff. I, I didn't feel too disposed to those guys. Brother Brad Cannon was in the church then, even though he wasn't a detective like he had been. And uh, he, um, he found out who they were. He, he was a real sleuth. He, he traced their phone calls. 
he finally caught both of them and they took them around and showed all the pastor's homes they'd hit. I did not want to do it. But God told me, I want you to go see with that youngest guy in prison. He's not a hardened criminal. He was just influenced by the older guy. And I did. And he asked forgiveness. And for about eight times I visited him, he studied the Bible with me. It takes God's grace to do that. Jesus had the power to hurt. He could have done on a wholesale scale what Peter did personally and just whack off somebody's ear. He could have called on his father to send legions of angels, 72,000 of them, so that to not only rescue him but inflict retribution upon his persecutors, but he didn't. He showed mercy. And so we read in 1 Peter 1, 23, Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. Oh, the non-threatening Christ. Whenever I want to get even and get a little pound of my flesh, I have to remember that. He exposed the sins of others. He didn't just gloss over sin. The Bible says he knew what was in man. John 2, 25. Isn't that amazing? He knew what was in man, but he still showed mercy to man. Sometimes we were merciful to people because we're blissfully naive, not Jesus. Christ crucified is the reason we can forgive, beloved. Would you turn to one more verse, well-known verse. You can probably quote it by memory, but I want you to see it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Ephesians 4, verse 32, the closing verse of this wonderful chapter. And be ye kind one to another, Paul says, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Don't be like that unmerciful servant in the parable of Matthew 18. Jesus said that he was forgiven a huge debt by his master. But what did he do? He went promptly out and took his fellow servant by the throat who only owed him a a relatively trivial amount and demanded immediate payment. Oh, don't be like that. The Lord, in studying this for this message, brought something to my attention I had never thought of before. I believe it's a legitimate application of this truth. Could I share it with you? What did Jesus do as he hung upon the cross? What did he bear? Well, he bore our sin. But that's not all. He bore our shame. Our shame. I don't know about you, but one of the things that I don't think I can afford to part with is my dignity and my reputation. But Jesus made himself of no reputation. And he took indignity upon himself. Your shame and mine. He was willing to be branded the friend of publicans and sinners. He didn't retaliate. It was said of him that he cast out demons by the power of the prince of the devils. 
He took it. His reputation was smeared. That's hard for us. That's when we bristle. Some of us would make good Pharisees. We're so separated we wouldn't touch a sinner with a 10-foot pole. May I remind you that separation, and we ought to be separated from the world, but separation is not isolation. It's sure not insulation. And if we're like Jesus, we won't be afraid of contamination. We will go with Him, as Jude the writer said, pulling people out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. And for that, God exalted Him, and He will honor us too. Beloved, let's not get offended at sinners. Let's get offended at sin. The late A.W. Tozer was a godly pastor and writer. One time you've heard me say he was the pastor of, of my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, who was an elder in his church on the south side of Chicago. A.W. Tozer tells of a rabbi who once consented to take in for the night a weary traveler. And as they talked over the supper table, he discovered this old man that he was befriending was an atheist. The rabbi was infuriated. He showed him the door. He said, I cannot abide an atheist in my house even overnight. He slammed the door on the old man, leaving him to stumble in the darkness. And the rabbi sat down and started reading his Old Testament by the light of his candle. And suddenly a voice from within, corroborating the truth of the Word of God, said, Son, why did you turn that man out? Even though nobody had audibly spoken, he audibly responded and said, Because he's an atheist, I cannot endure him overnight. And the voice continued and said, Son, I've endured him for almost 100 years. Don't you think you could endure him for one night? And with that, the rabbi leaped from his chair, dashed outdoors, leaving the door open, overtook the old man, brought him back in, treated him like a long-lost brother. Beloved, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. How can God do that? Because He's love. Love incarnate. May I remind you of one thing, and we seldom stop to think about this. One day, we're going to need that mercy at the judgment seat of Christ. Oh, I know what's commonly said about the judgment seat of Christ. There's, you know, we're, we're, it's just for the saved people, and, and um, you know, it's just going to be a, a, a judgment on the determined basis of rewards. Okay, I get that, but I'm going to tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says that at the judgment seat of Christ, we're going to receive the things done in the body, whether it be good or bad. And the Bible says to us in James chapter 2, mercy rejoices against or literally triumphs over judgment. We're still going to need that mercy when we stand before Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we've been made vessels of mercy. Help us to gratefully dispense that mercy to others.
Please forgive us for being so quick to defend ourselves and take offense at people that don't treat us right. Would you make us more like the meek and uncondemning and non-threatening Christ? Oh, Father, show us how much we've been forgiven that we might be vessels of mercy to dispense that forgiveness to others. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen.